Welcome back to another episode of the Startup Therapy Podcast. This is Ryan Rutan, joined as ever by Will Schroeder, my friend, partner, and the CEO of Startups.com. Will, today we're going to dig into something that literally every founder has to go through at some point. I mean, there's just no way around at some point having to pitch your vision to somebody. It usually starts with a conversation in the mirror, right? <laughs> like, yeah, this is a good idea, right, Ryan? You know, I think I think right, I should right. do this. Like, I should definitely spend the next 10 years of my life doing this. And that's not an easy conversation, but I'd say the exponential curve that we climb as we start to talk to other people about our vision gets pretty complicated. I'm not going to call you old here, but, you know, you've you've been pitching. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> I was right there with you. So let's go way back in time to the beginning of time as we see it, which would be, uh, you know, the, the dawn of the Internet. And we didn't even really get to pitch the vision of our startups. We were literally explaining to people what the hell the Internet was. Take us back in time, <laughs> way back in time. Well, was there a time before the Internet? Yeah, I mean, I remember in the early, early stages of my business, I was starting one of the first web design companies. And this is circa 94. So this is right at the dawn of the web browser. I mean, kind of really the seminal kind of moment of. Yeah. And I remember being so excited. First off, I didn't know what I was even supposed to sell at all. I was 19. I'd never sold anything whatsoever. And the second thing was, even when I was preparing to pitch, I assumed I was going to go in and kind of the internet was a given right? Like the internet's this amazing thing. I've, I've had a decade to think through it because I've been on it long before it was a thing. And I assume I'm going to go into a room, I'm going to pitch this thing and CEO's minds are just going to be blown. And they're just like, oh my God, you know, how do we give you all our money? And it didn't exactly go like that. <laughs> it went something like this. First off, who the hell are you? <laughs> Part of my vision, my packaging. Right. I didn't realize I was a 19-year-old kid with pimples. How did this child get in here? <laughs> so, so that, yeah, I didn't really expect that part. So I bust out my 46 laptop and I'm like, look, here's the future. The future is the internet. And their first question every time is, what the hell is the internet? And I'm like, well, you know, this is what I'm here to talk to you about. Soon, every business is going to have what's called a website. And, and I mean... <laughs> It sounds so silly saying it now, but like that was the thing. Yeah. And I assumed I was going to spend maybe five seconds saying internet website and the rest of the pitch talking about how we were going to build something incredible for them. Lo and behold, an hour into the pitch, they're like, wait, you can click this button and it goes somewhere else on someone else's computer. I'm like, oh my God, here we go. Yeah. I'm like, it's called, once again, it's called the internet. And I use it with my computer. <laughs> it's like, God, this is going to be a long run. I remember being told things like, you know, yeah, the internet and people literally saying that, like, I think I have that on a, a disc here in my desk drawer when people still had drawers yes, in their desk. Somebody mailed me the internet. Yeah, right. Like, I've got it here on a three and a half inch floppy. I remember distinctly walking out of one of the earlier large pitches. So this was like the first time I would have crossed into like a five figure pitch, which sounds silly and small now, but like it was a five figure pitch and I came out of it got back to the office and the team asked me how it went. And I said, I felt like I was trying to sell a boat to somebody who had never seen water. Like it was just like, they had no idea, they had no concept. Again, like how do you explain to somebody the value of what this thing is going to be when they don't understand the underlying infrastructure? Yeah, so I, I can't say that we exactly got to vision on that one. <laughs> it was more just like an educational session, but it was fun times. This is the crux of it though. Like. We're all so excited to sell our vision. We all kind of walk in a room like I did, expecting people to be blown away. 
right? With what we're about to talk to them about. Or, or even like, man, even when we're like calling up our friend and we just had the idea and we're like, oh my God, like, can you believe this? And they're like, what the hell are you talking about? And like, then we get so frustrated, right? I and mean, that's essentially the core of it. We're so frustrated that other people don't understand this amazing thing, this big vision, the way they're supposed to, right? You know, I have it in my head. Why aren't you excited about it? And I thought at the time, I thought that the reason no one was super excited about my vision was because I didn't have like these presentation skills. Like I pictured this like Steve Jobs character where you'd be able to go in and just like sell people on the dream and they would respond with like, oh my God, like the sales pitch is so good. It didn't even matter what you said. Right. And I'd come to learn later that there was like kind of a formula to this and I was using everything but the formula. So I mean, today let's... <laughs> Let's talk about the formula. Let's, let's talk about like... Yeah. <laughs> you had the black turtleneck, right? Be Steve Jobs. <laughs> but like, if people are frustrated, I'm sure many folks are, that people aren't seeing the vision the way they see it. They're pitching investors. They're pitching customers. They're pitching employees. They're pitching their friends, their spouses, whatever. And no one really gets it, right? And they can't understand why. And they watch these companies that have these silly ideas seem to get tens of millions of dollars in VC. And what the hell did they say in that room that, that I didn't say, right? You know, what was the magic like <laughs> passphrase they used? <laughs> but the guy on Shark Tank stuttered the whole time and he still got his money, right? And why is it that people are so excited about that vision and not mine? So I think all of that in the formula behind it, because like I said, there is one, are worth digging into today. Yeah, there's two points I want to make before we move on. One that I, I think is just, and I've made it before, I've certainly said this, this is our 99th episode. And I, yeah, I know, right? And so I've probably said this 25 times, but it's, it's a phrase my dad handed to me a long time ago. Communication is the burden of the sender, right? Meaning that it's incumbent on us to be able to explain it in a way that matters to other people. And we're going to dig into that specifically here in a few minutes. But the other one, just going back to a bit of why people don't understand, I'm going to use an analog here. You wake up and like you turn to your spouse or maybe later in the day, you try to explain to somebody the dream you had, right? The actual dream, like while sleeping. Yeah. And right, right. nobody ever gets it. Like it's super visceral to you. There's all these experiences that you had. It was all compressed. It was crazy. Right. Then I flew out the window and then Bob was there <laughs> and then Bob turned into right. And everybody just like at some point, like everybody's willing to tolerate about 30 seconds of a dream story. And after that, it's like this makes zero fucking sense. Like what you're telling me, I have no connection to. There's no context. Right. There's no context and they can't see what you're seeing. And I think this is one of the things that we forget to impart on people is that there's an important sequence to the details in which we release and that they have to have a certain amount of context and base knowledge. Going back to, you know, me trying to sell the boat to the person who'd never seen water, right. that wasn't going to work. It didn't matter how eloquent, how beautiful, how wonderful the boat was, you know, how what features it had. If they were like, and then it's going to sit in my yard, I don't get it, right? right. It well, wouldn't have fucking mattered, right? So I think it's important that we take that into consideration that there is sort of a staged approach to how we present this vision. And the reason founders stumble so much on this is because they sell the wrong stuff, right? The idea is like, I'm on Shark Tank. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to say, you know, here's something that's never existed before and here's why it's so awesome. Here's all the features and, you know, give me money. And in their minds, that's how it works. But it turns <laughs> out that to your point about the boat, that's it. They're missing the most important part of the pitch 
which is, what problem do you solve? In fact, whenever you and I talk to founders and they start digging into their pitch, and I love the fact that they're excited about it, the first thing we say, okay, slow down, slow down, slow down. Before you get into this, just one (laughs) question. What problem are you solving? And here's what's crazy. They stop. They're like, wait, what do you mean? (laughs) It's like literally the core of why you're you're in business because you're trying to solve a problem. And to be fair, typically no one's ever asked them. They haven't put a lot of thought into it. But I'll give you an example. At startups.com, we do all kinds of cool stuff. But at its core, we solve one simple problem. No one knows how to start a startup. Why? Because they've never done it before. Right? Everyone's doing this for the first time. It's insanely complex. It really actually doesn't make any sense. Most of the things that would sound logical just don't apply. Right? You know, we talked about this in another episode about how if you're doing a, a job interview, right? We were saying how like you'd be in the job interview, it's like, wait, so I don't get paid. Correct. <laughs> There's no certainty whatsoever that I'll ever get paid. Also true. <laughs> I'm gonna have to pay money to work here. Yes, also true. <laughs> Like it just goes on, right? You're like, well, this doesn't make any sense. You know, by the way, I just want to mention if what we're talking about today sounds like the kind of discussion you wish you were having more often, you actually can. You know, we're online all day, every day, working through exactly these types of topics with founders just like you. So any question you would have or maybe some problem you just want to work through, we're here and we love this stuff. And we're easy to find. You know, head over to groups dot startups.com and let's just start talking the list of things i need to do are completely amorphous and will probably change day to day no doesn't sound good yeah and like i have to go build a product that's never been built sell to a market that's never been sold with a team that's never been together with skills that i've never had yes good thing i brought my own pen i'm ready to sign (laughs) (laughs) yeah I, i mean again none of it makes sense so at its core when we start talking about this and we're kind of laughing about it because when you explain it like that, the problem is really obvious. Yeah, exactly. Right? Even the people that don't understand what the hell we do, like it's even more so. They're like, yeah, that really doesn't make sense. And so long before we explain like kind of what our features, benefits, and you know, all that cool stuff is, we get into why this problem exists, you know, and what that problem is and why it's painful. And, and we try to create some context around it. But most importantly, we start with the problem. It has to begin with the problem. It doesn't have to. But there's an entire graveyard filled with startups who went built solutions and then started running around looking for the problem that those magically fit. Or they built a solution for a problem of one, right. which I think is something else that you have to be very, very careful of, right? And like, well, I suffered from this. Okay, cool. Did you look around to see if anybody else suffered from this? Or is this a very much you or your business or previous role type problem? So yeah, it's super important to not only consider the problem, but to make sure that it exists for more people than you. Well, let me go back to my internet example. So there I am, 19 years old, and I'm pitching, you know, said CEO. And he's responding, okay, like I kind of half understand what you're talking about. You talk really fast and you don't make a lot of sense. Yeah. But on top of that, (laughs) I'm trying to map what you're telling me as to why it's even a problem for me. Yeah. Because by the way, as of right this minute, no one has the internet, right? In the way we do now. No one has a website. No one's selling. No one will sell anything on a website for another one to two years meaningfully. And so if you walk out of here and I do nothing with the information you just gave me, I don't see how it affects me whatsoever. And frankly, that's the response that I got. Like, who cares? I was scratching my head going, kind of the right right question. And it didn't even occur to me. Yeah, it was the right question. Right. It didn't even occur to me to 
so, to ask it or, or to talk through it rather. Going back to the same period in time where I finally encountered somebody, and you'll appreciate this because you probably have a similar story. I encountered somebody who was like, they came to me and they were like, Ryan, we need a website. And I was like, oh, finally, <laughs> somebody that understands the internet and right, the right. power. I'm like, awesome. What do we need it to do? Like, we don't know. It's just that like most of the work that we do is bidding on state contracts. And the state of Ohio has now said that in order to bid on state contracts, you have to have a website in order to be able to bid. It was part of like the digitizing Ohio. I don't, they had some name for it at the time, but they were basically trying to take Ohio. I mean, it was called Ohio. Cyber Ohio. <laughs> Probably. It's something equally lame. And so I was so pumped to walk into this meeting because they asked me and they said, we need a website. And so I was sure that they had figured out what problem they wanted to solve, that they knew what the value of this thing was going to be. And it was literally so they could check a box on a form, a paper form, by the way, which I thought was totally ironic, a paper form that you had to then submit to the state of Ohio saying, yes, we have a website. Here's the address that you then had to write in by hand. Like, not what I was hoping for. I mean, but more importantly, though, somebody understood the problem. I mean, the problem was kind of lame. The problem was, hey, I need to be able to bid on something, so I need a website. But they understood that there was a problem. There was a problem. Can't bid without it. <laughs> we were selling into a problemless economy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> People knew something called the internet was coming. They knew they didn't have it, but they didn't understand why it mattered. Now, fast forward a year, a year and a half. Netscape, the first commercial browser, goes public. Uh, one of the biggest IPOs at the time. And it's everywhere. I remember Mark Andreessen on the cover of Time Magazine. He's, he's sitting on a throne, right? It was a big thing. Um, <laughs> and at that moment, every news outlet jumped on this thing, right? And it was everywhere, right? You, like, you couldn't turn anywhere and not see internet. Still, nobody understood what the hell it was. Didn't matter. Everyone knew there was a problem, which is this company has internet. I don't have internet. There's, there lies the problem. At that point, Ryan, you know, our businesses skyrocketed, right? Because even if our solution sucked, it didn't matter because the problem was so evident. And I think what we fail to do, founders, is we fail to kind of set this thing up, right? It's almost like trying to watch a movie where the hero is like defeating the bad guy, but you've got no exposition that told you why that was even a problem. He's just beating up on this poor guy. Like, what, <laughs> what did this guy even do? You know, the movie has to set up the problem to make that big scene so penultimate in our minds and have it have value. And I think founders do a great job of talking about the benefits. But when you pinpoint the problem, here's what tends to happen. They tend to kind of just gloss over it. Like, oh yeah, you know, a lot of people want to be on the internet. And it's like, no, 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 no. You don't want to gloss over the problem so you can quickly get to your solution. <laughs> in fact, if you were to like kind of allocate the amount of time and attention and, and the win you need on either side, I'd argue you need about 80% of the value in the pitch to be on the problem and 20% on the solution because frankly, like if you set up a great problem, the solution kind of solves itself. I mean, that's what's awesome about it. Like you, you've got this cool opportunity where the problem is so obvious. Great example, currently. COVID is affecting 7 billion people. Solution, I've got a cure to COVID. I don't even care how your solution works. By the way, in this case, I do. But the problem is so evident, it's so painful, it's so big, that whatever you're about to tell me the solution is, I'm on board, because <laughs> I get the problem. Right, and it's clear, and it's, and it's easily understood. When you think about how much time and effort you need to put into the problem statement, it is mapped back to, 
how well do people already understand this, right? Like restaurants don't have to go too far into what hungry means, right? Because it's a well understood and universal concept. But when you start to get towards the edge of something that's a bit innovative, you know, even if it's not a full quantum leap, um, we're not talking about flying to the moon, but we're now talking about Uber, for example, where I'm now going to use an app to hail a taxi. It's not really a taxi. That's not really a trained driver. And it's a total stranger, but I'm still going to somehow do this, right? Like, you still have to put some effort into explaining why this is a better solution to that problem, right? The problem is well understood. I need to go from here to there. And this is where you cross over into now, okay, problem is well explained. It's articulated, easy to understand. But there's a lot of problems that aren't, right? Going back to the internet example, when people don't understand the base infrastructure that you're going to build off of, you have to spend enough time on that such that they understand the problem. Using your COVID example, COVID very well understood, right? It's quantified, right? It's, it's a massive problem. We can quantify it in terms of the number of people it's affected. We can quantify it in terms of the number of dollars lost individually at the national Mortality level, company levels, the amount of money that we have to spend on, on fixing this. We can quantify it in terms of time and experiences lost, right? You know, kids being out of school. There's all sorts of qualitative stuff that we understand about it. It's an easy problem to feel, right? Not necessarily one to wrap your head around because there's so many impacts. And then you talk about severity, right? We did this a few weeks ago where we talked about when we break down a problem, right. severity and duration are the two things that we look at. Like, right, how serious is this actually? How long is it going to last? Well, in the case of COVID, great example for that. Severity, extremely high. Duration. Yeah, yeah. It's, at some point, who knows? Who right? knows, right? And so that makes it a very pointed problem, right? At some point, we'll know. Um, but right now, we just have no idea. This is one of those things that if we're belaboring it, it's because it needs to not only be belabored, but really picked apart and dissected. Because once you understand how to frame a problem, the rest becomes super easy. And all of a sudden, your vision, everybody's on board. So let's kind of take it a step further. And let's talk about why the person you're pitching has a version of the problem that may not be your version of the problem. And more globally, there may be 12, 15, 100 different versions of how the problem is understood, received, et cetera, by all these different audiences. I'll give you an example. A long time ago, Elliot and I essentially launched a company that it isn't, but it was essentially what a firm is now. It allowed you to buy stuff using payments. Long before a firm, which is to say we fucked it up. And so, <laughs> this was one of the most amazing things. When, when we were putting it together, I remember when I first pitched Elliot on the idea, I was like, dude, can you imagine if you could buy everything using weekly payments? And he was like, like layaway. I was like, well, not exactly like layaway, but the concept's the same, whereby you can you can break big payments down into little payments. And I said, and this is going to be huge. You know, it's going to be the next generation of e-commerce and finance, et cetera. And he jumped on board and, and we launched this thing. So he got it. You know, he got his own version of it and he understood the finance part well enough. Here's where we are totally, totally thrown. At this point, we're so excited. This thing's going to be a massive idea. And we go to pitch for capital. Because this thing was going to need a massive, massive amount of capital. There's no way around it. And we go into VCs. We're on Sand Hill Road. And we're sitting in with this presentation that we're so proud of. And by this point, you know, we'd both been to this show a few times before. So we had a pretty good sense for like what we're supposed to do here. And we go in and first, second, third slide is like, you know, problem, et cetera. And we go through the problem, like a third of the people in the US, et cetera, are below an income line where making a $400 purchase has a lot of friction. And we move on. 
and we get to like the fourth slide and the VC's eyes are glazed over like what what the hell did we miss this pitch is amazing <laughs> and finally we come to learn that no one understood the problem and so <laughs> finally a VC asked us and he's like well I don't get it why would someone need to make payments on a $400 item why don't they just put it on their black card it's called connection to reality yeah oh my god and and we were so far off the mark it's not that they didn't understand the problem. It's that they didn't relate to the problem, right? Like these were all rich Stanford kids and like most of them had never had a part-time job. So let's say you're going to buy a G6 and you don't want to, you don't want to put all your cash <laughs> yeah. in that because you've got a better cash on cash return somewhere else, right? I mean, but that's on us, right? That's on us for, yeah, for not exactly understanding it. their version of the vision, right? And so we started to modify the proposal. This was almost comical. And we'd open up with, there are poor people in the world. <laughs> there are people that don't make money. And we had to quantify this. We had to like spend time explaining that there were people that don't make as much money as you do. And you know what's funny? I bet if some of the VCs are listening, some of the people that we may have pitched, because sadly we pitched a lot because a lot of people said no. I bet if they're listening now, one, they're going to be like, huh, you know, they actually weren't right. And number two, they're like, no, I totally got it. Bullshit. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> Elliot and I walked out of every meeting going, I can't believe this. But lesson learned, right? Like, we didn't understand that we were going to have to vastly modify this pitch to consumers versus investors versus employees. I mean, there was going to be tons of versions of this pitch. You know what I mean? Yeah. Again, communication is the burden of the sender. And, and what that really means is that you have to understand who you're talking to, right? Like there's good information is good information, but only to the extent that it can be received, absorbed, and then the audience you're delivering it to can right. do something with it, right? Um, you know, if I just walk into uh, my, my, my daughter's uh, room across the hall here um, and start delivering a lecture on calculus, it's good information and, and it will be useful to her at some point, mostly for graduating university, not for anything else. And, you know, it's going to be absolutely impossible for her to absorb at this point because she doesn't have the base skills to understand it, right? So the context isn't there. And so I wouldn't do that, right? And it's obvious in that situation. But we have to remind ourselves that nobody else has spent nearly the amount of time that we have thinking about this, dreaming about this plotting it out, thinking about it in nine different ways and for who it applies to. And we get stuck in our own version, in our own head, and we start to project that onto the people we're talking to, right? And it's really, really important to consider what is their background? What is their knowledge level? Also, what do we need to get out of this? Because you're not always pitching investors, right? It's not always about making them understand to the point where they want to hand you a check. This also starts to occur when you start to market your product or look for co-founders, or pitch employees, right? There's so many different audiences, and each one of those audiences is going to have at least some degree of nuance, if not magnitudes of difference in terms of how you present this to them. I love your example about your daughter, because this is one of, one of my favorite sell the vision examples that breaks, and parents flub this in an epic way. It looks something like this. Our daughters are like nine or 10. And we say, you need to get good grades. And let's just imagine they were just pushing back in the most honest way. We, you know, both of our daughters are awesome. So, so they would do this. They're smart, but they're also very kind. And they would say, why? Well, so you can get into a good college. Why? Well, so you can get a good job. Why? Well, so you can make money to pay your mortgage. What the hell is a mortgage? And we're like, oh shit. We just assumed 
somehow that they would miraculously understand this chain of life events that they could not be more disconnected to. And so all of their why questions aren't even a pushback. It's a question of why would that make any sense, right? Like I barely earn an allowance and and you're trying to explain to me that I should care about a mortgage. Like why would that make any sense whatsoever? (laughs) When we're pitching startups.com to potential employees, the first thing I ask is, have you ever worked at a startup or started a company? Because that's going to be my first, you know, fork in the road where I'm like, if yes, then I can kind of get into contextual stuff, right? You know, fundraising is hard and all that stuff. If no, I've got to paint a very different picture of what a founder's journey looks like and why those problems might be relevant or something you can connect to. Otherwise, my pitch isn't going anywhere. But that's not the way people do it. I've got a one-size-fits-all pitch. And it starts with all the features and benefits. And it's exactly the pitch, right, to our daughters. You can get into a great college and afford your mortgage. And they're like, I don't understand. Just something to do with recess? <laughs> like, like, that doesn't make any sense in my world. Um, and it's such a it's such common oversight, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think the other thing that we we tend to do is we start to learn what points resonate with people and get them excited. And I'm speaking specifically on the on let's stick on the employee side because this is critical, right? Especially at the early stage of the startup, the people that you bring on, the people that join the team are going to have a major definition on the future of that company, right? Um, because just by nature of how startups work, there's a lot of autonomy, there's a lot of uncertainty, and therefore you're trusting these people to do the right things and get the jobs done. It's not hard to get people excited about startup companies in a lot of cases, right? Because you've got, you know, a founder that's literally blasting beams of enthusiasm from their eyes and they're just so excited about it. It's not hard to fall into that. So we start to pick these points that we sort of know resonate with people. And it's really easy to get people about the excited about the startup. And then I'll ask founders like, okay, but cool. I'm glad they're super excited to work with you, right? I'm glad that they're really pumped up about your mission. Why do you want to work with them? Well, we didn't really spend that much time talking about them. You know, it was mostly about, you know, we get so caught up into pitch mode and getting people excited. And we take so much adrenaline, endorphin, serotonin away from having somebody else understand our vision that we forget that like, we need to see how they fit into this. And so just founders, as you're listening, be careful about, you know, obviously sell the dream, you know, build the vision, but make sure that that doesn't get in the way of understanding who's on the other side of the table, lest you run the risk of having a bunch of enthusiastic people who can't help you, right? Like I can get my daughter pumped up about the startup, right? No problem. She'll be all fired up. And then I'll be like, okay, cool. I need you to go build a cold email campaign. And she's going to be like, mm, this is where it breaks down, dad. This is where you lose me. I think where we drop the ball consistently as founders is we don't make the connection for people. Yeah, we don't. And we have to. Right. Here's your version of the vision. So like, you know, we're saying, you know, here's something you may have experienced, but we can't stop there. We also have to explain how, you know, this exciting problem, this exciting vision applies to your future, right? So if you're a customer, how is your life about to get better? You know, if you're an investor, why will this be a good investment? You know, why will we be able to pull this off? If you're an employee, why is this a good career path? Okay, so you know, so you've told me that you're solving this important problem, but I just care that I'm going to make more money and this is going to be an enjoyable job, right? Like, how does some of that map back, right? And again, this gets into other parts of the pitch, but I think what's important is you have to understand the folks that we're pitching are trying to do that mental math 
They're trying to make it relate to them. They're trying to make, make themselves care about it. If we just leave that to them, hey, I'm just going to ramble on and you see if you can fill in the blanks, total miss, right? It's the same as when we were pitching websites. And I just say, hey, I'm going to pitch you internet. You figure out how it works for whatever company that, that makes sense to you. <laughs> right. Total miss. Once I started to get real explicit and I started to say, okay, look, and I remember like I was pitching a wine company of all things, right? Early on, a pretty good size mail order wine company. It's like a $25, $30 million company at the time. And I was like, look, you'll be able to sell wine on the internet. And what's funny is up until that point, it didn't occur to them that they could sell wine on the internet. They were still understanding like why we would talk about wine. Like, I just want a web page of pictures of wine. Like, does this make any sense? And it didn't occur to them that like I could solve the problem of e-commerce. And so Yeah, we can go, we can take this a step further. This isn't just about information, it's about actually fulfilling the outcome that your business is intended to fulfill. Or so if I'm talking to an employee about why this is like, you know, an exciting vision, and I explain to them, like, you get to build this, right? You not only get to help solve these problems, but you get to be the architect, you know, of these solutions. Then they're like, shit, okay, that's awesome. Because I'm not doing that at my current job, right? So now I'm more invested in this vision because I see what my role is, right? It's like talking about football, but not explaining there's a position on the team. Right? <laughs> it's like, this team's going to go on to win. And they're like, uh, am I playing on this team? I'm the water boy. What's happening yeah, here? And so we have to be mindful of tying this back to specifically where they fit in. Yes. Yeah, so you're really talking about selling the outcome at this point, right? You know, we've gone through selling the problem, selling the vision, their version of the vision, and then selling the outcome. Well, it's like you said, you know, we have to be able to go back and tie this. So it's sequential, right? So if we haven't clearly delineated the problem, there's no version of moving forward from there, right? Because then we haven't done anything. So then you've got to be able to tie it into their version of the vision, which is going to involve some level of, of us giving them the potential outcomes, right? But even those have to be tethered to things that they already wanted to do or in absence of that, when presented, will be really excited about going and doing that, right? Like they may not have thought, again, if they've been working in a corporate environment, they may not have thought there's any version of work that involves me being directly involved in the creation of the product, right? Where I'm like, I'm going to be driving this, I'm going to be doing this. And so it's really about mapping back to what matters to them, right? What is the transformation they want to go through, right? The career progression. If you're talking about your customer, what is the transformation they want to go through, right? I go from carrying my Nokia smartphone where I can play, what was the game? Snakes? Um, <laughs> that, so that wasn't that, the, yeah. you remember that? Yeah, it was way back. It was a one color phone. And now I've got an iPhone, right? Now I can do all these other things. So like, there's this transformation that occurs. And so this is the reason that I want to buy into this outcome, right? The outcome is significantly different than what I have now, but it's for me, right? It's my outcome, right? The outcome of the company versus the outcome of the employee versus the outcome of the investor versus the outcome of the customer are all very, very different things. And so it's, again, it's about thinking through who you're talking to, what they need to hear, how they need to hear it. And I think it's that last part that we often, often drop the ball on because we don't get close enough right? We know sort of what they need to hear, but it's the how we deliver it that I think we fall short on more often than not. You know, I think like a good example, you know, we're talking the pitch for startups.com and we're saying we want to teach every person on the planet to become a founder. Cool. But like, then what? Assuming you've done that, you know, yes. you and I are assuming that when we pitch like that, 
that everyone else connects the dots as to why that changes things. And then we realize, yes. no, like we can't stop there. Like that's not the vision. That's a component no. of the vision. It's also not the outcome, right? Making everybody a founder isn't the last right. step in that vision. The last step in that vision is saying no. that if the world has more founders, you have more people that truly give a shit about what they do, right? There's no half-interested yep. founders, right? When people go all in, they are all in, right? And so that's what makes our job cool is we get to work yeah. with these people, all different you know, lines of work and kind of like what they crafted, but it's theirs, they have ownership, and they are all in on what they're trying to do. They're all in. And they're typically trying to do things that haven't been done before, which means that we get these, you know, at least incremental changes and improvements right. in life. Right. Like use the antithesis of that. And this is a very hyperbolic statement. But back in, you know, the 2000s, when we had the financial collapse, when it looked like the entire U.S. was simply right. selling financial services to each other. Right? <laughs> right. That was a problem. Right. There was just this lack of diversity in terms of like everybody was just pointed at financial services. Right. It's what it felt like. Now, that's that's hyperbole, obviously. But when you run into that type of environment, I think what you're saying and, and certainly our mission at Startups.com is to create that level of diversity, right? To turn as many people as want and can be founders into founders so that we get these incremental improvements in life so that there are things happening that aren't happening now that tend to happen in that environment, right? Versus a corporate environment where, yeah, there's innovations, they tend to benefit the corporation and, you know, or there's, you know, just a strong financial incentive behind it. Not that there shouldn't be a financial incentive behind your startup company, but a lot of them, I would argue most of them, start with just a real desire to solve a specific problem, often that they've suffered from themselves, which leads to really different outcomes, right? The reason you start, right, the place that vision came from is sort of as important as where you take it. Agreed. And it's important to not make the assumption that, that they'll connect the dots, right? And maybe they'll connect them a little bit differently, but just to say, hey, this problem solved, now look at the rest of the world and you figure it out, I think is, again, a giant miss. I think I'll give you a good example. A couple of years ago, I had an opportunity at my kid's school to pitch the school on this idea of making entrepreneurship kind of a core part of how we uh, teach kids. And the school runs kindergarten through 12th grade. And so my pitch was essentially this. What if we gave kids two things that they generally don't get in school? Ownership and agency. And I just started there and I said, ownership is when something comes from you when it feels like you are part of the core and the seed of the idea, you don't take those things lightly. When somebody creates something, no matter how mundane it might be, they feel very strongly about it. Conversely, when someone just goes to work on something, it's not that they can't attach some passion to it. It's just not quite the same. When you create something, you don't really need a ton of motivation. The creation, the process kind of drives that in and of itself. Not for everybody in always the same way, but it's pretty consistent. And the second part is agency teaching kids the idea that they can just go do what they want, not what, just what they're told, right? Here's 12 careers. You pick one and you try to get the best grades toward it, right? What if none of those work for you? What if what you want to do doesn't make sense toward any of those things? None of those, yeah. Well, again, this is going off and creating things that never existed before. So it can't exist on a list of things to go do. Right. right? And so my outcome to the parents and the, the faculty, what have you that I was pitching to, was what if we were the school that graduates kids that really care about owning what they do, meaning they give a shit, they're self-motivated, and they now have all the tools to explore all the possible ways they want to get it done, right? 
And the parents went nuts over it. A lot of parents are, are founders, actually. And the parents went nuts over it. They're like, that's exactly what I've been looking for. I'm like, dude, why don't we just teach it? <laughs> like, why yeah. use all these abstract paths to kind of hope they get these tools? Why not just bake them in like math? And to the school's credit, they agreed and, and they went all in on it. It's awesome. But isn't it funny that even in an environment like that, where it's a progressive environment and the educators are definitely, you know, on, on the right side of that curve and you've got parents who are founders who are used to having ownership and agency, you're literally having a conversation about ownership and agency and yet it took you taking that final step to connect the dot of saying, right, why don't we right. just do this, right? Like, it's amazing. But we have to, to be really careful about assuming that people will make these leaps in logic along with us without us literally drawing the lines for them. Here's where the pitch would have failed. Hey, we should teach entrepreneurship at the schools. So, you know, more kids could learn it. And here's where that would have failed. It would have failed because every parent would have had a different idea of what I was talking about. They're like, well, you want to start an MBA program? Because they would have thought in their minds, that means you specifically want to teach everybody to, to have a career path that is a founder. Right. And I started off with right. ownership and agency to say, I don't care if you start a business. Like, that's not really the point. It's to have ownership, to give a shit about what it is that you're doing and have the agency and the tools to go pursue it. You might be a musician, but it's your stuff and we're going to give you the tools to go pursue it in the encouragement, right? Once I painted it in a broader context, they understood. Now, it wasn't terribly hard to pitch because they were half on board, but I think that happens a lot. I think we get in a lot of rooms where folks are half on board. When Ellie and I were pitching those VCs, they only took the meeting because they were intrigued with the concept. But we can also put a bullet in this thing by totally making a bunch of assumptions and, and just assuming they're going to get to where we already are, which fails every time. It does. Yeah. Again, you cannot leave anything to assumption here, right? Right. Everything needs to be clearly delineated. You need to have all those data points and then you need to draw the line that connects them. Agreed. And so, Ryan, if you're okay, I'd leave it with this. Selling a big vision isn't about like the fancy pitch. You don't have to be Steve Jobs, right? There's a formula to this, right? As much about the setup as it is about the delivery. It's about being able to craft that pitch in a way where the problem is so incredible and so well understood that when you start explaining what you do, and more importantly, how that outcome is going to apply to that person, it's doing all the work for you. And I have to, I would love to throw this into this episode. The greatest pitch I've ever heard, I think you're probably on board with me on this one, was Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, right? I don't think there's been a time where I've read it or listened to it or watched it where it hasn't just like made me fall apart. So I'd love to end this episode with just a clip that we drop in here that is kind of giving you what is essentially the greatest vision speech of all time, which touches on the problem, the solution, the outcome, the application, in probably its most purest form. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Yeah. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day 
Even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today.